Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, welcome back, Startup Grind Global Podcast. This is Chris Jernu. And today, before we dive into uh, our episode, I did want to mention a great opportunity from our sponsor at Render Capital in Louisville, Kentucky. Are you a startup founder who could use $100,000? Answer's probably yes. If so, Render Capital wants you to apply for their 2021 Render Competition. The Render Competition invests $100,000 into eight early-stage startups each year to help them scale their solution and attract future investment. Your startup should be one of those startups. Anyone is welcome to apply. Applications are now open, and the deadline is May 6. So, not too far away. So, jump on now and learn more about the Render competition. Uh, that is at render.capital slash competition slash startup grind. I also have um, a direct link in the notes, but that's render.capital slash competition slash startup grind. Check it out. In today's episode, we have the big dog, Phil Liban, founder of Evernote and mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. M-M-H-M-M. I think that they love people looking like idiots. <laughs> When they say this, I don't know why else, Phil. Um, Phil Liban is a co-founder and CEO of All Turtles, a mission-driven product studio, and mm-hmm, a new app that makes video communication more clear and compelling. Previously, he was a managing director at General Catalyst, and before that, he was a co-founder and CEO of Evernote, which he grew to become a beloved product for hundreds of millions of users. Um just an incredible, incredible founder. Very lucky to have him on the show and just super down to earth. Um, yeah, really loved it. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Welcome, Phil. How are you doing, buddy? I am good. How are you? Good, good. Um, so, yeah, thank you for joining me. Um, and today I just wanted to go through your story, um, an incredible story, and and get through to modern day. And But before I do that, is it just mm-hmm? Is that how you say the company? Uh, yep. Okay. That is that's how I pronounce it. But you know, however, however you want. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is like no, it's just anything tricky. I'm missing. All right. Um. So yeah, look. Going back, Phil, I'm going to take you back a little bit here because it's what I do um, with the founders that join me and ask the question: Was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? No, no. I mean, uh, I am the black sheep of the family. Everyone in my family is a, they're a musician or like a chess grandmaster or a scientist or something respectable. I was the, I think I'm the <laughs> only one. So well, my, my, my brother. So, but that's, you know, that's this generation. Chess so grandmaster. I, I think maybe, maybe I just made that up. I, don't, I can't remember. They're all very cultured. I'm definitely the black sheep. It sounded, it sounded impressive. Uh, and so what? So my, my and parents are actually both. My parents are both uh, concert musicians, so they're they're both classical musicians uh, from Russia. 
Oh wow! Um, and, uh, so I have, yeah, everyone is a everyone is some kind of a you know overachiever except for me. Right. And and was that so? What was like dinner at, at, at was that just TV off, music, hearing mom and dad play? What was what was it like at home? No, I mean, uh, so we we came over. Um, so I, I was born in what was then the Soviet Union, and we came over to the U.S. Uh, when I was eight. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents both had to work all the time to kind of make ends meet. So I was, I was more or less, you know, on my own. So, uh, it was lots of, lots of unsupervised TV time for, for when I was growing up, just because, uh, you know, had no, had no other option, but I learned, I learned English from watching like, you know, eighties sitcom reruns. <laughs> yeah. Cobra, Cobra Kai is a good one. I'm watching that now. Um, and, and, uh, and, and where did you land? Well, did you land in, in? In San Francisco Bay Area, how, how, where did they end up? To start? No, uh, in New York. So I grew up. I grew up in the Bronx, uh, in New York City, uh, and then um, went to Boston for for college, and then kind of moved around a bunch and wound up in in the Bay Area for for a while. Uh, and now I, I fled San Francisco a few months ago, so now I am in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. Arkansas. I was going to say Austin, Texas, seems to be a nope. popular choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a trend follower, so no. I'm. I'm in. I'm in Bentonville, Arkansas, right now. How did? Okay, well, we we got all types of stuff to cover here, right? But, but um, yeah. So, but what was it? What was the education, and how did you end up in um on the West Coast? Uh, well, um, you know, like I said, I went. I went to. Uh, I went to school in New York. I went to college in Boston, and I started. Uh, I started my first company, kind of my first serious company, uh, right in college with uh, with some friends of mine. Um, and we started. Uh, it was a company called Engine Five. Uh, we started that in uh, 1997. That uh, was a long time ago. Uh, we were one of the first like dot com like companies. So we built a bunch of like we built some of the very first uh, e commerce sites. Uh, so you know, like we built like shopping carts and you know back when the the the, the consumer internet was just getting started. Um, and we worked on that for a couple of years, just, you know, a few, a few, a few college friends and I, uh, and then we, uh, we are really exhausted. It's really, really hard, um, running your own company. Uh, and so that we were, we were able to sell it, um, for, to a company in Austin, Texas. So you can wish to a company that was called Vignette. It was kind of one of the big, you know, dot-com companies of the time that so we, we got, uh, we, we sold our first company and then started another one in Boston and then sold that. And then, you know, this, we're, we're sitting around deciding on what to do next. And that's how we, you know, but that's how Evernote came to be. Right. And then what was, what was that? Was that a, a personal problem you had or you guys just brainstorming that? Well, my first, you know, our first company was this, uh, you know, e-commerce company. Uh, and um, so our customers were, were stores, were retailers. And then our second company is called Core Street, was a security company. We sold to the governments and to large banks. And so we always had to, for both of those companies, the product wasn't for us. You know, we always had to ask like the customer want you know, to like really try to understand what the customers wants and uh, just got really sick of it. Um, so when it came time to start the third company, we were thinking like, we're done with like trying to worry about what customers want. We just want to build something for us. So, like, what, what do we want? So we, um, we sat around thinking, all right, let's build something for us. Um, so what, what, what are we into? And yeah, I just remember those, those brainstorming sessions when we were figuring out, um, what kinds of stuff can we build, you know, for ourselves? Uh, and I, I, I was a big video game player. So we said, uh, well, maybe we should make a video game. 
but then I kind of thought, ah, man, there's already so many great video games. I don't really have time to play them. I don't know if the world like needs more video games from us. What else do we like? And then someone, this was in 2007. So like, uh, yeah, 2007. Uh, one of my co-founders said, well, you know, some of this new social media stuff is like looking really good, like really interesting. Maybe we should make a social media platform. And I remember saying like, yeah, but like there's already MySpace and no one's going to beat MySpace. It's too late. So we decided <laughs> not to start a social media platform. Uh, and we said, well, we kind of like being productive. Like we like like life hacking, brain hacking, productivity tools. And productivity tools back then were already 30 years old. There was like, you know, Microsoft Office then really changed. And so we thought, all right, well, what is like a new definition of what productivity could be if you were thinking of like a cognitive prosthesis, a second brain? So we started we started futzing around with that. And then I very quickly ran into this other guy. We were in Boston. I ran into this other guy in California, Stepan Pachikov, who is this brilliant, famous kind of Russian-American entrepreneur. And he had a team of people working on a very similar problem. Uh, and so we met and we decided to join forces uh, rather than kind of having two, company, two, two small startups competing with each other. So we reformed the, you know, the company and moved my team to California and we became, became Evernote. That was in early 2008. Early 2008. And then I'm, I, um, I was trying to think of the, uh, the big VC we had on stage at, at, at um, Startup Growing Global Conference going back. I can't remember the name, um, but I'm sure that there was a bunch that passed on Evernote. Uh, but the comment was from our founder, oh. please do not mention Evernote to this VC because he just hits the roof because he didn't invest in you guys. Um, but who, who was it? I can't remember for the life of me. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, he's like. I mean, we got passed on by like. I mean, I had. You know, it's funny. I talk to founders now sometimes, and they're like, "Oh man, I'm really like, I'm kind of depressed. I've been like raising money forever, and I talked to all these VCs, and no one's investing." I'm like, "Well, how many VCs have you talked to?" And they'd be like, oh, "I already talked to. Them. I had like eight VC meetings." <laughs> Like I think I, I I literally I literally talked to over a hundred at Evernote. Like it was it was well it was well hundred before anyone invested, and everyone passed on us. Like we we sucked at fundraising. I wound up going to Kazan, which is in Tartarstan, which is where Tartar Sauce comes from, right? Uh, to get my first investment because no one in Silicon Valley would give us money. So like our first money came from Japan, Russia, Canada. It was like it was this really eclectic collection. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people passed on us. Uh, but that's fine. That's like that's but that's what's supposed to happen. They couldn't see the genius, Phil. They couldn't see the genius. So yeah. So um. Okay. So you get you get to to, to Silicon Valley, San Francisco. You've, you you kind of tackling this big problem. Um. It, you know, Evernote quite unique in, in 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 the problem you're solving. How does it evolve? And then how do you kind of um? Do you remember that that moment when you're like shit? We're onto something. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it really well. Um. So it was in it was in early 2008. We had we had I think just shipped the first beta, uh, and I was standing. Uh, I had I remember I had like made some notes. I like put in some like insurance, some car insurance documents on on my Mac at home. And a few weeks later, I was standing at the at the DMV at the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I needed to like I needed to get something that I put in as a note. I didn't have some paperwork on me. And I was like, oh, that's right. I left it at home. It's on my computer. What are we going to do? And then I like, I had this realization that like, oh, wait, like I should be able to just look it up on my iPhone because, you know, that's what we built Evernote for. And so I just like took out the iPhone and I like, 
you know, search for the node and it was obviously right there. I mean, I wasn't like surprised because we had designed it that way, but it was the first time like I used it for real, like, and I just had this feeling that everything's different now. Like everything before that day was like the primitive way that, that we were never going to go back to. And like now it seems, you know, trivial. Like, of course you can like do something in your computer and then find it in your phone, but it was kind of a big deal back then. Like I, that had never happened to me like in the wild. And so just this like realization that like, yeah, I, I, I remembered a piece of information over there. And now when I need it over here, it's just like right there. And I didn't have to like copy stuff and synchronize stuff. It just kind of worked. I, I remember feeling like, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be significant. And, and then like, you know, given the, the, you know, the, the past startups that you had, right. And, um, you know, core street, for example, being quite, sounds like enterprise, small, you know, small number of, of, of customers, I suppose, right. You know, um, how did you kind of get your head around the scale that would kind of, you know, occur with Evernote? And like, was that just like learning on the job stuff? You know, we, we had a really good team, uh, even early on. And we, you know, it was, it was a lot of the same people that were with me in the previous two, the previous two companies. And, and still, like there's a lot of people with my current companies that were, you know, with me at Evernote and some, some even before. Uh, and we, uh, we kind of knew what we were doing already. Evernote was our third startup. So like by the time you're in your third, we kind of knew what we were doing, but this was before AWS. So we had to like stand up all of our own infrastructure. So like, I remember being like at the data center, like screwing hard drives into servers. We had to like physically like assemble the servers and stick them into racks. And I remember like learning an important lesson, which is when you, when you're putting, when you're inserting machines into racks, uh, you have to start at the bottom. Because if you start at the top, uh, they fall over. <laughs> it's easier to start at the top because, like, you're, you know, I'm lazy. I don't want to like bend down too much. So, like, but if you if you put a few a few servers at the top of the rack, they will tip over because they get top heavy. So I had to learn that important Thanks. management lesson. But yeah, but other than that, you know, it was it was it was pretty good. Uh, our previous startup, Core Street, had been doing a lot of like pretty mission critical security stuff for a few right. you know, millions of people were using it in in like to like authenticate their secure login credentials, that kind of stuff. So we knew a little bit about, about scale uh, by then, but we'd never, we had never worked on anything consumer related. So that, that was our first consumer product, but we really saw it as like, it, it was kind of cheating. Like the cheat code is we were making it for ourselves and um, that made it go super fast because if you think about it, like um, if you think about it, like, like, like it takes, you know, let's say it takes 10,000 iterations to like make a really good product. Um, at my, at my previous company at, 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 at core street, um, you know, we're making big security stuff. Like each iteration would take like a year and a half because we would like ship some software to the Pentagon and then like wait. And then like a year later they would, and then we would like make a new version. So it would take like a year and a half to cycle, to iterate. And so if you need 10,000 of those and each one takes a year and a half, it's like, you can take like 15,000 years to build something really good. Didn't have that kind of time. But if you're making something for yourself, then you can iterate like every like 20 minutes. So like, you know, you push out a build and you're like, as long as you're honest to yourself, you can tell whether it's better or worse than the previous one used to be. And uh, if it's getting better, then great. Uh, and so the, the building for yourself is sort of, it feels like cheating because it can go so much faster because you can, you can close those loops much faster if you don't care about, you know, what other people think. Um, that has lots of problems too. It's not like all free. Like it is, it is, it is kind of like a cheat code, but you know, you lose, you lose other stuff when you do it, but it, it, 
worked really well for us in the beginning of Evernote. And, and it's working great for mm -hmm as well. This is why, why all of this stuff that we're building is working so fast because, um, you know, we're just back to building it for ourselves. We haven't, haven't done that in the past few years. Actually, haven't done that since Evernote. Right. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm definitely going to, um, you know, make that the focus um, today. Um, just got to got to talk about Evernote, Phil. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm this super impressive stuff. Um, so, I mean, I haven't been there. I haven't been at Evernote in what, six years now. So there's a lot of stuff that's happened after I left. You probably got some. I know, I know, I know, but, I know, but we've got like, you know, we've got, probably got some Evernote fans, you know, listening. We're going to, we're going to cover it. Um, still use it. Oh, great. Yeah, and then what was that like? You said you said you're kind of building it for yourself, and this kind of translates to the new business. So was that, hey, as long as um, the the two, you know, the senior team are happy for me to build this feature, we're just launching it and seeing how it goes, kind of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, by and, and normally, you know, for the first few years, we we didn't have to launch it to see how it goes. Like we knew how it was going to go because we could tell whether we liked it, whether we were using it. You know, everything that we shipped um, for the first few years until it got really big. Um, you know, we only ship stuff that we loved, that we would use ourselves. And like, if we weren't using it, we figured it wasn't worth shipping. So you didn't, we, like, there was actually very little risk. Like we were, we really took it, this idea seriously that we were the target audience. Um, that, you know, I don't think we weren't able to keep that up, you know, indefinitely, but for the first, you know, three years, four years, yeah, we, we, we just did what we wanted and it, it worked great. So Evernote becomes this, you know, tremendous global success um then you um do you just do you, you start seeing companies come to you for advice and stuff how do you make this transition to to kind of uh vc and um yeah do you just love helping other people solve problems as well or what um why general catalyst um well i i, I mean basically after i was at evernote for nine years uh, and I was really like, it was the, it was, it was like my life's work. It was like the, you know, for nine years, it was the, the single most important thing in my life that I identified with. And like, it was just massive. And, um, when I stepped down, um, I just, you know, I just kind of wanted to retire. So I thought, I thought being a VC would be like semi-retirement. Um, so I didn't, um, General Catalyst made me a really good offer to join. Uh, and, and, uh, it kind of seemed too good to be true. Um, but you know, and I remember, I remember my, my, my dad always used to tell me, um, if something seems too good to be true, jump at it and don't ask any questions. Um, so that was my philosophy. I'm like, great. I'm in. Um, and it turned out and it was great. It was, it was the GC's a great firm. It was a really, really, really huge learning experience for me, but it turned out I was there for two years. It turned out that like, I just don't care about being an investor. It's just not, I'm not that good at it. I'm not, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't feel like work. It doesn't engage my brain in the right kind of way. And so it was great to be able to like see things from the other side of the table to get like that broader perspective. Uh, but I realized after a couple of years that it just wasn't like, I just wasn't going to be particularly good at it. And wasn't, it wasn't all that gratifying to me. So it was, you know, Sorry, Dad. I'm too old to work on things that I don't like working on. So I had to move on to something else. Absolutely. So all, all turtles, um, very purpose-driven um are these kind of just it sounds yeah like now as i'm hearing the story about evernote you're just going back to just building stuff that you love well so all turtles was um is uh, a little bit different it was actually in some ways 
kind of the culmination in many ways was the culmination of what, of what we've built uh, before, kind of everything we worked on. The idea was we were going to try to make worthwhile products. So not, not for ourselves, uh, products that we thought were like, were good for the world with as little nonsense as possible. Like with as little of the, the kind of the Silicon Valley startup VC track is like, there's a lot of bullshit in it. It's not very efficient. There's like all sorts of things that are just wrong with this idea, with this, with this model. And so we just said, let's just, let's just try to make it so that there's good products in the world with as little nonsense as possible. Um, and, um, you know, let's kind of learn as we go. So we, 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 we launched that in, uh, 2017. So I guess it's been about four years now. Um, well, almost four years, uh, or more than four years. No, almost four years. I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore. Uh, and the model is, uh, <laughs> the model is, um, imagine like, let's just say you're like one of the most talented, like naturally gifted, brilliant musicians in the world right now. Like you're just like a Mozart level, like one in a million genius musician. You don't have to like make a music company. You just play. And the platforms like YouTube and others have been created where you're going to reach a billion people and you'll be able to have an impact. And if you're like, you know, a one in a, you know, in a million kind of like, you know, Shakespeare level, brilliant, like writer, you don't have to, you don't have to start a, a writing company. You just write. Or if you're like a brilliant filmmaker, you don't have to like make a film studio. You just make films. But the way that the, uh, the entrepreneurial model has grown up, if you're like one of these one in a million, super brilliant, talented, you know, product people, like product founders, you have to make a shitty little startup first. Like, that seems weird. We have to like, first you have to like learn how to become a mediocre CEO of a brutal little startup and like get a board of directors and raise money and learn what a foreign aid valuation is and do like all this other stuff before you get to like actually make your product. Like, it seemed very inefficient and, and very ego driven. And like, why are we the only industry that does that? Literally, I don't think in any other industry do we take the most brilliant people and be like, right, first make a brittle company. And like, after you do that, then we'll talk about like you doing the thing that you want to do. So we just thought, all right, let's just, let's, can we have a structure where the most brilliant like people can come, we can work with them, but that we're not fetishizing the company. We're not fetishizing the startup. We'll just work on projects and products. And then we'll decide some of them, you know, some of them should be their own little startup, their own company, in which case, great, they'll do that. But some of them don't need to be companies. They can be just products. And so we just kind of said, what is it? What is, what is a, a, a product studio look like if it doesn't fetishize making little startups? It just tries to make worthwhile products. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's what we did. That's what we're, that's what we're still doing. So we have, I don't know, eight or nine things that we're working on at any given time. And what they all have in common is, you know, I think the world will be better if any of these things succeed. And mm -hmm, it's just kind of the latest thing to come out of it. Well, yeah, let's let's dig a little bit deeper on that. So was that just one Zoom call too many for you, Phil? Or what, what happened? Yeah, yeah so it was, we were sitting around. So this week is actually the one-year anniversary uh, of all of us kind of working from home at All Turtles. So I, I sent the email to everyone a year ago this week and kind of being like, hey, we're all going to work from home now. Um, and so a few months after that, so that was in March. Uh, so by May, we were already, you know, all working from home, um, for a few months and, you know, the first couple of months, I mean, I'm sure all of you guys remember this, like the first couple of months of the pandemic, it was kind of interesting because it was terrifying. And like, when you're like, when you're scared, you're like, oh my God, like, are we all going to die? Like what's going to happen? Like, you know, sheer terror is kind of interesting, but after like a couple of months, like that sort of 
you know, went away and it was just boring. Like we were, we, we were very productive. We were working on a bunch of projects. They were actually doing pretty well. It was very high stress, but it was just like dreary. Uh, everything like everything just seemed like dreary on video. Um, and uh, so we were just goofing around. Uh, we started like, I just, you know, we just started goofing around like to make people smile during our video meetings. Like we, ne we never intended for it to be a product. It just started as a joke. And we were just like, you know, do things where we were displaying Instagram photos in the background. And I, I had this green towel, I had a camping towel um, that I like hung up behind me. It wasn't like, it was just like a small towel because that's all I had. And I was just like experimenting in Zoom of just like projecting different things on my towel while I was talking and we were just goofing around. Uh, but it, uh, it kind of snowballed. Uh, pretty quickly into something that we were like, oh, every time I like use this and I show it to people, like they laugh and they, they, they're asking me how I'm doing that and they want to do it too. Um, so yeah, we just started, we just started pushing on that and, and it went pretty fast. Are you, are you using a green screen right now behind you? Is that how you get that, that clear? Uh, yeah, so the, the, I am, uh, well, it's not, it's not like a, a professional green screen. I have like literally a, a bed sheet, like a green bed sheet hanging behind me. Um, but, uh, you can use it in like, there's multiple modes you can use mm -hmm in kind of with or without a green screen. You can like, you can, you can make it look great kind of regardless of what your setup is. It's just going to look, you know, different. You have to like decide what, you know, what background you want to be in, how you want to be framed. Like there's, there's stuff to do. Um, but I think having a green screen gives me the most flexibility since like all I do is, you know, appear on video and make presentations. So it feels worthwhile, especially now that you can get them for like. 50 bucks but you don't you don't need a green screen you can do all sorts of stuff without it well i'm gonna get i'm gonna get a green screen Phil, you, you should yeah, it, it gives you a lot of flexibility well and i've, down, I've downloaded the the product too i i, I um, have had a play with it. i i like it um i um during the pandemic i set up a, a studio myself amateur amateur hour over here mate but um and then my uh, my daughter had said gone to school and told the teacher that uh, you know daddy had all these lights delivered to the garage <laughs> didn't sound didn't sound didn't sound too good um yeah oh. but yeah working work in progress if um, i'm converted um so then and then can you talk a little bit around these other products right so i, I um I downloaded the AI, um, really kind of fascinating. Um, love the idea of like, you know, I guess um, if, if I've got it right, loneliness as a problem. Um, can you just talk about some of the other products uh, that you're working on that you're proud of? Sure, yeah. So the one that you're talking about now is, uh, is Replica. Um, it's actually one of the first things that we started working with. It's a really brilliant team. Um, the, the the founder and CEO is a, is a woman named uh, Genia, Evgenia Kudia. Uh, and they've been making, they made some of the very first like chatbots. So they've been working on like conversational AIs for a long time. And, and the, you know, the problem they were solving is um, uh, loneliness. Um, there's a lot of people that are very lonely, like way before the pandemic, but obviously much more so, much more so during. And um, it's a, you know, it's basically an AI, you know, friend. Um, and it was kind of fascinating uh, what they found was that it was pretty, it was easier to, to make something that felt like a real emotional experience, an emotional connection. Obviously, everyone knows you're talking to a robot. That was, it was easier to do that. It was easier to encourage people to have really deep, meaningful conversations with an AI 
because like they knew that it wasn't a human because they knew that it wasn't there wasn't actually someone there judging them and there wasn't you know someone listening and it didn't have to be smart in a conventional sense like you're not it's not something that you know you you can you should it isn't something that like is worth trying to like trip up like you would with Siri or with Alexa like it's there to give you this like emotional resonant connection like a like a support you know almost like a closer to like a, a you know an emotional support dog uh, but in an AI sense, and that that's working great. Um, they've have all sorts of great traction. Um, the first uh, kind of product that came out completely completely out of all turtles that we started replica was a you know was a was a freestanding team kind of before we just started working with them from the beginning of of AT. Um, but the first thing that we made ourselves was, is called Spot. It's a it's an AI for workplace harassment and discrimination prevention. So training, reporting, all of that kind of stuff, um, that's going great. So it's it's used by kind of a lot of big companies, medium-sized companies uh, uh, for that. Um, we have a product, uh, a company called Telus, which is doing healthcare uh, for elder care in particular. So it's this really magical system. It's a, it's hardware. It's a well, hardware and software. It's, it's this magic box that you plug into the wall um, uh, that... Uh, uh, basically uses precision radar to automatically figure out the health status of, of elderly people that are that are at home so that you can, they can stay at home longer. Um, all of our products, basically what we're really focusing on now is, is future of health and future of work. So all of our products kind of fit neatly into, into these two categories. And, and more and more of these categories are, you know, are kind of the same thing. Uh, they are they're really blending together. Like what is the future of how we stay, you know, healthy and well and, you know, productive and wealthy. So those are the, those are the areas. I think we have uh, a bunch of the stuff is on our website. Some of our newest things that are still, you know, secret aren't on there, but I think we've got eight or nine things going at any given time. And, and how are these kind of, um, you know, if you, if you're kind of getting away from this traditional VC model and, and this incredible, um, uh, you know, woman that's got the replica product. How do they? How does it come together? Are they come in to kind of pitch you, and then you like. How do they become part of the family? If if it's not like, I need I need capital. How how, how do you kind of bring it in house? Yeah, you know, we don't have a. Um, we don't. We're not a program, so we don't have like a formalized process. It's not like you know Y Combinator or something like you can't like apply. Maybe at some point. Um, so it really varies from, from project to project. So some of these, like, for example, one of the companies that we work with is called Carrot uh, Fertility. Uh, it's at uh, uh, getcarrot, get-carrot.com. Um, and they're fairly big. Um, they did a big B round, you know, a few months ago. Uh, they provide fertility benefits to, to employees of, of, of companies. So they basically help, help people who want to start planning, um, you know, pregnancy, fertility, Kind of long term, and um, that is a you know that is a separate startup that has you know that has funding. Uh, I was one of the first seed investors, but you know they have other VCs coming in, and we are just working with them to do a whole bunch of stuff kind of for them. But that is a you know that is a freestanding startup. Uh, then sometimes other things like mm -hmm or Spot, those didn't exist at all before All Turtle, so we just like we create them. Uh, build everything, and then at some point, when they're like, when there's, there's, we know this product market fit, then it goes out, and we, you know, we raise money from additional investors, and they become standalone companies. Sometimes, uh, like a project like Vitally, 
isn't a company at all. It's just a project that we do at All Turtles in partnership with some, some big partners. In, in that case, we, we partner with a PwC Japan, but we have partnerships with, with a few big firms. So there's no, there's no real rules uh, about how. Uh, there's rules about like what we'll work on. And we're very, like, we're not trying to get gigantic. You know, we're, we're pretty happy doing a handful of things at any given, you know, at any given time. And for the ones where it makes sense to have external VCs and investors, we do that. Uh, and for the ones that it doesn't make sense to do that, then, you know, we, we just provide the funding or we get it from a corporate partner or something like that. And, and then, okay. So then, um, flip, you know, uh, flipping back to, uh, mm -hmm. um, what is like, you know, um, okay, you've got COVID, we're, we're improving video calls. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite fortunate. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm joining from a call in Melbourne. You know, we've kind of got things under wrap, but we were, you know, six months, um, you know, locked in, locked in, in the garage kind of stuff and, and um, you know, missing human connection, missing those in-person events. How does, how does like video call, um, What's the plan for? Mm -hmm. Is there ever is there ever not in person events? You know, is there is a what's the future for? Mm -hmm. Let's start let's start there, and I'll when my brain starts clicking in, I'll come back to the other part. You know, I think the I think the main thing is that um, substitute substitutes a word. Um, so the 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 world is fundamentally hybrid now. Um, uh, in the in in the before time, you know, a year ago before the pandemic, uh, most things were either uh, in person or online, but rarely both. And they were either uh, synchronous or asynchronous, but but rarely both, right? So either you were doing things that were like kind of live, or or they were recorded, or they were like um, you know in person, or they were online. So you can imagine like a two by two. And the the thing that's changing right now is all these things are blending together. And so we can like almost almost every experience in life is being rebuilt to be partially in person, partially online, partially live, partially recorded. Uh, pretty much everything from teaching, like every class is 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 having some of some of each to healthcare, like how you how you visit a doctor, how you get treatment, how you get medicine, to you know sales calls, to presentations. Like it's all just getting mixed up. And this is a permanent thing. It's, it's getting mixed up because it's um, because it's better, right? So, like during the pandemic, uh, maybe we were um, we had to use video because we we had to because we were forced to. But but now, in kind of exiting the the pandemic phase, we're going to keep using it because we want to. Because there are certain experiences that are better to have this way. Just about just about every aspect of life will have some component. That's video based, which doesn't mean that everything is going to be done over video, but it means that everything is going to be connected to it uh, in, in, in some way. And this is kind of similar to um, when I was starting my, my first company, Engine 5, in, in 97. You know, I remember having these discussions, uh, I remember having these arguments with people where they would say, well, well, you know, what percentage of companies do you think you're going to be connected to the internet? And some people would be like, I think 25% of all companies are going to be connected to the internet. And other people would be like, that's crazy. It's way too high. It'll be like 2%. And we were like, we think it's going to be 100%. <laughs> and, you know, like that's what happened, right? Like over the next 10 years, like 100% of everything went on the internet, which doesn't mean that like everything like that, like you don't go and do things in person in companies anymore, but it means like every aspect of life, like is like one or two hops away from the internet powering all of it. Even if you're going into a physical store.
And the same thing is happening now with video, right? Where a year ago, what percentage of like every person, every company, every school, every church, every organization, like had to do something on video just about every day. It was like a tiny percent, maybe less than 1%. In the future, it's almost 100%. So it doesn't mean that every transaction is being done on video, but it means that video is underlying just about every aspect of life. So I think this is, um, I think this right now, this like this, this, this new video emergence is, um, it's the biggest change since like the dot-com days. Like this is as big as the internet was in the, you know, early 2000s. Like this is what's happening with video right now. Great. And, and then, and then as it relates to, mm -hmm, have you got, can you share any upcoming features or anything that you? Well, we just launched, uh, we're coming out with new versions just about every couple of weeks. So we just, we just had a major release uh, last no, two weeks ago where we added slides. So you can now author slides directly in mm -hmm, and they look great. You know, we go, we make lots of demo videos of using the product live. So you guys can, can check that out. Uh, we have a, we have a nice surprise coming out this week in a few days. Um, uh, we have another big version a month later, another one a month after that. Uh, the, our, our, our main philosophy is uh, we call it IRL plus. So better than in real life. Um, rather than saying, man, like stuff on video isn't quite as good as things in person. So how do we make it like almost as good? I think like this almost as good is kind of a dumb philosophy. It's really hard to do. So instead we say, what can we do in mm -hmm, that's ridiculously better than you can do in real life? That like, that, that jumps over the, the almost as good and goes directly to much better. And how do we do that for education, how do we do that for sales and how do we do that for healthcare and how do we do that for startup pitching? Uh, and all of these things can be made much better using, using, mm -hmm, using this, like, uh, the smoothly transitioning between live and, and recorded, uh, uh, interactive video, then, you know, then you could do without it. And so we're like constantly releasing features that, that do that. Some of them are meant for presenters. Like the core features are really there to just help you present better on video, but some of it is meant for just participating. So for example, we have a big hand. So we, we do a gesture detection, uh, kind of like this. So if I make like a, you know, if I make a thumbs up, I'll get like a big green Hulk thumb, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it turns out that this is, um, like, you know, let's say I can do a thank you gesture, or I think the heart is like my favorite. Um, this is like a trivial example of, of better than in real life. Like the next time I'm having an in-person meeting with people and someone is talking and I like, I go like this and I don't get a giant foam heart. I'm going to be like, what the hell? Something's wrong. Something's broken. Like, obviously I made a heart emoji with my hands. I want the giant foam heart to appear. Small example of this, like better than real life philosophy. And then does like, uh, in, in kind of, does this become, you know, augmented reality? Does like, how does like, how does it all mix together? Like, I just, I'm just trying yeah. to, yeah. I think, I think that's a really good question. I think, I think it very much is. So uh, we really see this as an augmented reality play right now. Um, so I'm, you know, as you could tell, I'm a giant nerd. I've been fantasizing about augmented reality and working on various AR use cases forever for decades. Like I used to ride around the red line in Cambridge, Massachusetts with all sorts of shit strapped to my face because, you know, I don't get embarrassed easily. Um, and even we had all sorts of like projects underway. We, you know, we built the first, we built like one of the very first Google glass apps. And so we would spend a lot of time thinking about like, well, 
okay, imagine if every person I meet with, I have like a private video display that could show me information about everyone. You know, what would my interactions be like? Yeah. And, you know, we just kept waiting for someone to make the hardware that was actually good enough to make that happen. But then in May, we just kind of realized, wait, I have every single person I meet with, I do have a fully private video display that can show me this information because it's my giant monitor. Because all of a sudden, like everyone that I was interacting with during the pandemic was a over video. And so I realized like, I've got my perfect AR headset, it's my monitor. And so we were able to like take a bunch of ideas off the shelf that we thought we had to wait a few years for the, for the headsets to become available and we could just implement them just on your computer. So like everything I'm doing is augmented reality. It's just that right now we're doing it with, you know, with our devices and hopefully, you know, over the next months and years, as we all kind of leave the basement, you know, blinking into the sun, like some of this transitions to, you know, like actual head mounted displays and other hardware that comes out. So I think we're almost a way to like, we can test drive a bunch of like AR use cases before there's, you know, fancy uh, head mounted displays and that kind of stuff, but it, it'll go in that direction once we're really building this hybrid feature where it is both in person, you know, and, uh, uh, and uh, online. And so, you know, so maybe the idea is if I am in, the, in, in, in a meeting, you know, if I'm teaching a class, uh, some of the students are going to be online and some of the students are going to be live. And I don't want the students who are online to have a better experience. So, you know, if I go like this, then like the students that are watching me in video see it, but maybe like the students that are there in person also see it because like, you know, it's, they're, they're seeing it through their glasses or something like that. So I think that's part of the, the hybrid future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got, had the Google glasses too. They were paying the ass to get shipped to Australia. Uh, I think I had someone in the US buy it for me. The promise, the promise that was Google Glass. Um, and yeah, it'd be nice to have your yeah your latest tweets and stuff showing up. I could just... Um, yeah, all yeah. the slides, all of the stuff, I think would, works really well. Um, well, Phil, thank you very much um, for joining me today. Um, really appreciate the chat. Yeah, um, and um, what's kind of advice to, to entrepreneurs? Um, you know, don't do it, man. Don't do it. Don't start. Don't be an entrepreneur. <laughs> job. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I love the uh, couple of things that I wrote down uh, personally was just the, um, you know, I love that you're a big VC and that you're you're not preaching venture capital, but also just um, the fact that you said, you know, a lot of us as artists and 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 producers of 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 music or whatever have all these platforms, yet we still want to build. The next platform when we could just be enjoying creating the art um, yeah i think it's very very inefficient to it's very inefficient to like fetishize the the company the startup it like it really takes a lot of you know when i was a vc i did a little bit of of of, of sort of back of the envelope math uh of um who was likely to get what were the characteristics that were likely to get a really good top tier silicon valley vc a round like what are the what are the attributes that you know you had to have or you should have that that determines your likelihood? So I did I did a little bit of math on a bunch of deals that were being done by you know kind of top tier VC firms like the one I was at and a bunch of others. And this was you know this was a few years ago, so things have changed a little bit, but but not that much. Um, this was you know five years ago or something. Um, basically, uh, there are six factors that have a a big influence about how likely you are to get to get funding. So the six factors are if you are if you were um, uh, white or um, South Asian, 
male uh, between the ages of 22 and 27 with a computer science degree or a computer engineering degree from Stanford (laughs) and used to live live within 50 miles of Stanford. If you were those six things, you had like some, some probability of like getting an A round from a top tier VC. It was still hard, but let's just say that probability is one, just like normalize it. For every one of those six things that you weren't, your chances of getting a top tier A round drop by an order of magnitude. So two to 10 X less likely for each of the six things that you're not. So when I looked at the deals that were getting made, a lot of them had all six out of six. Some of them had five out of six. A few had four out of six. I don't think I saw a deal that had fewer than four out of six, which, you know, nothing wrong with those six things. But if you are a 35 year old woman, uh, a 35 year old Japanese woman living in Tokyo with an architecture background, you could be a Mozart level genius about like some product feature. You're not going to get into this treadmill. You're not going to get into it. You got nothing. You, you've got to like stay at your architecture job or, you know, retire or something. And why? Like, obviously the people and the ideas who fit into that very narrow VC funnel is a tiny percentage of the great ideas and the great entrepreneurs in the world. So like, that's fine. Like let, let the VCs have these six things. Like we just want, we just want the rest of it. And, and, and the big part of getting, getting the rest of it is saying, we're not forcing people to make companies because not everyone wants to make a company. Not everyone wants to like, you know, neglect their children for five years and work crazy hours. Like there's plenty of ways to be extremely talented and to contribute your talent to the world and to make something, make something great without forcing you to, you know, make a startup, be a CEO and go through, go through that conflict. Now, having said that, I've, you know, I keep doing it. So I, I, I fail to demonstrate learning behavior myself. Uh, but, you know, we're also trying to create a, an, an alternate structure for, for people. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was going to say, put that on the idea ideas board, Phil. We need you to fix venture capital for us, please. So I'm it's sorry. in the public. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.